1: Well, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen God do a lot of great things in and through his followers, but something that I want to draw your attention to is something that we've seen over and over again so far in the book of Acts, something that we'll see again here in chapter 5, is that as God does a great work in and through his followers, something that we need to recognize and note is it always is connected with the obedience of those who are following him. And the reason I want you to note that is because there's this very important connection with how great God uses us, the great things God does in and through us, with the obedience that we are willing to show him. Let's think for a moment about the obedience that we've seen so far from Jesus' followers. God tells them, hey, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But before you do that, I want you to wait. Wait wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're obedient. They wait there and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in tongues and this crowd gathers. And all of a sudden the Lord leads Peter to preach the first sermon and to preach the first gospel message. And Peter is obedient to preach that. And we're told that 3,000 people get saved. And then Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple to pray and they're led to heal this lame man who's begging there at the gate beautiful and Peter responds in obedience to the leading of the Lord and he says to this man silver and gold I do not have but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise and walk and he lifts the man and God heals him well a large uh, uh, crowd gathers because of that and once again Peter is led by the Lord to share the gospel and he shares the gospel and thousands more get saved. The religious leaders, they don't like what's going on. And so they arrest Peter and John and they severely threaten them never to teach or preach in the name of Jesus again. But Peter and John respond with, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you judge. We're going to obey God, not you. And once again, we see their obedience. And so they're released and they go and they share with Jesus' followers what had happened, the threats that were given. And they pray to God for boldness, that they continue to obey the calling to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we're told that the Spirit of God gave them boldness, and they continue to go out and speak the word of God with boldness. And I want you to know that every real significant great move of God so far that we've seen in the book of Acts has been connected with the obedience of his followers. Now I want you to think about how different the start of Acts would have been if Jesus' followers were disobedient. Imagine if Jesus says to them, you know what, I want you guys to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but first go to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And they go to Jerusalem, they go in the upper room, they wait one day, and they're kind of, you know what, we're tired of waiting, we've waited long enough. Peter, the you know, outspoken one, stands up and says, you know what, guys, we got this. Let's go reach the world for Christ. You know, we don't need to continue waiting. I mean, imagine how disastrous the start would be if they didn't wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And what if when God led Peter to share the gospel, that huge crowd that gathers, he decided, you know what, this is a big crowd. I'm not really a big fan of you know, sharing with you know, big crowds of people. And you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll get other opportunities at another point in time. Let's just enjoy you know, the move of the Spirit right now. And I'm just going to sit back and be quiet. 3,000 people wouldn't have heard the gospel and gotten saved. What if when Peter was led to reach out and, and heal this lame man, he decides, you know what? John, we're here to pray. That's why we've come. We got more spiritual things to do. You know, this guy's been here for 40 some years. You know, we can reach him another day. Let's just go do our thing. He wouldn't have been healed. There wouldn't have been a big crowd. Peter wouldn't have had another opportunity to share the gospel and people wouldn't have got saved. What if Peter and John, when they were threatened, you know what, never teach or preach in the name of Jesus again, instead of responding by saying whether it's right for us to do what God says or you, they say, you know what, all right guys, if that's the way you feel about it, we won't do it. We won't speak, we won't preach, we won't talk about Jesus anymore, just please don't do anything to hurt us. Imagine now the message that they would have brought back to, you know, the church family who they came back and got to share the wonderful news of what God had done. They'd come back and say, guys, you know what? We really need to tone this down here. We need to stop preaching about Jesus because these guys are really going to do some horrible things to us. You see how greatly God was able to work in and through his followers so far in the book of Acts has a direct connection to the fact that they were obedient to him. You know, this is something that we see throughout the Bible. As you look at different people in the Bible, you see someone's obedience or disobedience has a direct connection to how greatly God uses them in their life. I think of Samson because we're looking at uh, people that obeyed God and the disciples. But Samson was a man who literally was the strongest man ever to live. He supernaturally had strength from God to be the judge over all of Israel, to protect them from the Philistines. And he had a wonderful start, this great Nazarite vow. He was conquering and beating up Philistines, protecting them, the protecting the Israelites from them. And you know what? Sadly, in Samson's life, because of his disobedience, he lost his strength, he lost his eyes, he ultimately lost his life because he was disobedient to the Lord, this great and wonderful guy, full of promise, lost all the things that God was doing because of his disobedience. You know, another person I think about, we usually see him in a negative light because of how his life ended, is King Saul. But you know, when you look at the start of King Saul, he had the privilege of being the first king that God appointed over the nation of Israel. He was a great man, a great humble man, he had a great start. But yet, unfortunately, because of disobedience in his life, ultimately, the kingship was removed from him. The work that God was doing in and through him ceased. And he had lots of little areas of disobedience. But there came one, one very significant one, where he's waiting for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifice before they go into battle. And he's waiting and he's waiting. and He's like, I'm done waiting. I will go offer the sacrifice myself, which was not the place for the king to do. The priest had to come and do that, and he's taken a role that he shouldn't have taken, and he does that, and Samuel comes with a message for him. God says to obey Saul is better than sacrifice, to heed better than the fat of lambs. And ultimately, Saul, your kingship is now going to be removed from you and given to another, and your descendants will no longer be on the throne because of your disobedience to God. So we see throughout Scripture There's this reality that obedience to God brings this ability for God to do great things in and through us. And a disobedience to God hinders the work that God does in us. And I hope all of us this morning would say, you know what, we want God to do great things in us. We want to do God to do great things through us. But understand this important principle that we see over and over again in Scripture. Our obedience or our disobedience is going to be one of the key things to determine how greatly God uses us. In our lives, I think one of the most important lessons any Christian can learn is obedience to the Lord. You know, it's something that you see almost in every single character in Scripture. It's over and over again that we see in the Bible, and it's something, unfortunately, I know in my own life has taken me a long time to not just understand, because we can understand the importance of obedience, but that's not where it should stop. Are we actually doing it? Are we actually applying it? Because that's the real key. I think we understand, yeah, we should obey. But are we actually obeying in every area of our lives? So when we look at the obedience of the apostles this morning, my prayer is that not only would we grow in our understanding of how important obedience is, but that God would really reveal to us areas in our life where we're not obeying. Areas in our life where we need to change and obey him the way that he wants us to, and that there would be a real significant change. And hopefully that we would see him doing greater things in and through us because of the obedience that we are offering to him. Well, last week we saw how powerfully God dealt with disobedience in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, ultimately taking their lives from them. And now this morning we're going to see how God powerfully uses the obedience of the apostles. So chapter 5, we left off in verse 12, and it says this. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of them, none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So Luke tells us through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among So God's doing many miraculous signs among the people there through the apostles, but I want you to know where this is happening. Where is it that God is doing this work? Where is it that these apostles are going to reach the people? And notice we're told in verse 12 that they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, Solomon's porch is the place where Peter preached that sermon after he healed the lame man. It's where all those people gathered to him. It was there that Peter and John were arrested. It was there that the high priest and the, the council took them and, and told them, never preach or teach in Jesus' name again. And so they've already been in Solomon's porch. They've already been threatened never to go and preach, especially there where all the people are. And now we see the boldness of these apostles, because that's where they are again. They've been threatened, never do this again, never teach, never preach in Jesus' name again, and they're going to the heart of it all. They're going back to the place where everyone is, all the religious leaders are, and they're preaching Jesus. Once again, we see this great obedience to God. He says, go out into the world and preach the gospel, and they're doing exactly what God says. So God's doing miraculous signs and wonders through them, but I want you to note the most important miracle that God was doing among them. Verse 14 says this, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Something that isn't good for us to understand is the most important miracle there is, is the miracle of salvation. Because the only miracle that has an eternal Lasting fruit. You see, you know, you could be healed of something and, and, you know, God could do that work in your life, but you could still reject him. You could still not accept him and you could still go to hell. You know, salvation is the most significant miracle of all. We all oh, we want to see all this supernatural signs and wonders. Well, if supernatural signs and wonders don't lead people to accept Christ, then they're not really that significant. The most significant miracle there is is when people get saved and their lives are transformed for all eternity. Now, up to this point in time, Luke's been giving us specific numbers. The first gospel message, 3,000 people get saved. The next gospel message, he says 5,000 men are saved. So probably about fifteen to 20,000 people. Now he just kind of gives up. I think there's just too many to count. And so he says multitudes of both men and women were added to the Lord. And Luke now gives us some specifics about these signs and wonders that God was doing among the apostles. Notice what he says in verses 15 and 16. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now notice this, God is moving so powerfully in this miraculous way that people are bringing the sick, and they're putting them on beds, they're putting them on couches, and notice that they're hoping that even this will happen, that Peter's shadow might pass by and that people would be healed. Now, we're not specifically told whether or not people were healed by Peter's shadow. It merely tells us people thought Peter's shadow would heal them. But let's say that it did, that his shadow, there is crossing over and, and was bringing healing to people. We might think, well, wait a second, someone shadows healing people? That doesn't seem you know, to, to make sense, the touch of a shadow. Well, We know that with Jesus, the touch of the garment from the woman with the issue of blood healed her. You see, I think the reality is it it brings someone to this place of releasing their faith in the fact that Jesus can heal them. For that woman with the issue of blood, she's like, if I can just touch Jesus' garment, then I'll be healed because I know Jesus has that power. Oh, if Peter's shadow will just touch me, I know I'll be healed because Jesus can use that. And so it's just this point of releasing your faith, not that there's power in the garment or power in the shadow, there's power in Jesus, and there's power when we place our faith in him. And so this seems to just be a, a place in which people released their faith into the Lord. But but notice what God was doing. There's all these people from surrounding cities. They're bringing demon-possessed people. They're bringing sick people. And we're told this, they were all healed. Not some of them, not most of them. God's doing this amazing work. They're bringing all these people, and God is healing all of these people who they bring through the apostles. And so I'm sure there was huge excitement among the apostles, among the believers of these miracles. They're reminded of, man, this is just like it was when Jesus was here. All these people are coming. They're getting healed. This is so great. But once again, there's a group that is not happy and not excited, not only by the preaching of what they're doing, but the miracles, and that is the religious leaders. And so let's see how they respond in verses 17 and 18. Then the high priest rose up and those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So when the high priest and the religious leaders, not only do they know that they're preaching the gospel once again after they told them not to, they're doing all these miraculous things. Everybody who's coming is being healed. People who are being demon-possessed are being released from that. I mean, there's this huge move of God taking place, and we're told that they're filled with indignation now this Greek word translated indignation means envy and jealousy and indignation and so these religious leaders they have this jealousy this envy. Man, look at the crowds. They're coming to the apostles now. Look at the miracles that the apostles are able to do because these religious leaders couldn't do those miracles. These religious leaders weren't drawing these crowds. Remember, in the life of Jesus, they had the same issue with him. They were jealous. They were envious of Jesus, his authority, the fact that the people were following him, the fact that he was doing all these miracles. And now, once again, they're in that same place. And now Jesus' followers are doing the exact same thing that Jesus did, and they're definitely not pleased with what is transpiring. So they're filled with this jealousy and they grab the apostles and they place them into prison. Now imagine this, because the last time Peter and John had an encounter with them, they severely threatened them. We weren't told exactly what those threats were, but I'm sure at least it was, you're going to be beaten really bad or you're going to be killed. And so now they're grabbed again and they're imprisoned again. And I'm sure they're all ready for, okay, what's coming? Something bad's about to happen. But notice what transpires as they're in that prison at night. Verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the apostles, they're locked up in prison. They're thinking about maybe this is our last night here, or at least tomorrow we're going to have a horrible beating. And as they're there in the prison, they're locked up, they're secure, the guards are there, an angel of the Lord comes and delivers them and releases them miraculously from the prison. But something I think is very important to note is they're not only set free, but they're set free with a purpose. He didn't just come and say, all right, guys, you're free. Go do what you want. He sets them free and gives them a purpose. This is what I want you to do. This is what the angel says. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You know, I want you to know he didn't say, Go free so that you can run and hide. Go free so that you can escape the consequences that the religious leaders are going to bring to you because you've been preaching in Jesus' name. Go free so you can just indulge in your own comforts and, and get away from this city. Go somewhere else. No, they were set free for a reason. They were set free to go back to the temple and to speak to the people all the words of this life. God freed them from prison so they could go and reach more people with the good news about Jesus. Jesus. You know, I think something important for us to understand is that when God sets us free from something, he always has a reason. There's a purpose. He doesn't just set us free just to set us free. He sets us free because he has a purpose in that. When you and I accept the gospel, God sets us free from our slavery to sin. And he does that ultimately first so that we can have a relationship with him, but that we can be free from the bondage of sin, that we can now live for him, that he can now do great things in and through our lives. He doesn't just save us just for the sake of saving us. He has a purpose within that. But you know, once we're believers and God saves us from trials or saves us from addictions or saves us from different things that we're in, I believe there's two main purposes in that as well. First, to draw us closer to him. But second, to help us to be used more for him. He he delivers us from those things to say, you know what, now I want to send you into this area or do this in your life so that I can use you for my glory, so that I can use you to impact more people. So the apostles are told to go back to the temple and keep preaching to the people. Now, I wonder if when the angels said that, if anyone kind of raised their hand and said, well, wait a second, you realize... We were arrested for doing that just a few minutes ago. You know, we were in the temple preaching the gospel. That's why we're in this prison cell. So you're telling us to go back to the same place and do the same thing that God has put in the prison to begin with. I just want to be clear with that. Yes, that's exactly what the angel of the Lord is saying. And this would be a hard command to obey because they recognize as glorious as it is, God, you're rescuing us from this prison, but you're sending us right back into the area, which is going to get us right back into this prison again. And sometimes that's what God does. He says, you know what? There are things that I want you to obey that are going to bring difficulty to your life. There are things that I want you to obey that aren't going to be easy for you to put into practice and the consequences that come might be hard, might be difficult. But are you willing to do it? Are you willing to obey what I tell you to do? Well, let's see their response. Verse 21. And when they heard that, They entered the temple early in the morning and taught. This is great. They're in prison at night. They're delivered and right away they just go early in the morning back to the same place, teaching the same message that got them arrested to begin with. And they do that because they want to be obedient to God's command. You know, I think this is a great example to us. Because God wants us to be obedient to his commands, even when they're hard to obey, even when they bring us difficulty, even when they bring us persecution. Are we willing to put those things into practice? You know, it's easy to obey God when everything turns out nice and easy. When we look through scripture, and and those are the ones that we like to memorize, those promises of the good things that God's going to bring into our life. And, oh, I'm going to do this because look at the promise that goes with it. And it's so great and it's going to bless my life. And I, oh, I hold on to that and I'm so excited about that. But what about the times when we do things for the Lord and we don't have the good, nice feelings and we don't have all the the wonderful things that come into our life? There are things that come into our life that is persecution, that is difficulty, that is trials. Because that's the reality of the world that we live in. And when we're obedient to the Lord, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the reality of what the Bible tells us. And so there are times when I say, you know what? Obedience to God equals trials, equals persecution, equals suffering, but am I still willing to do it? Or is that when I say, Well, Lord, I'll obey when everything's nice in my life, but I'm not going to obey unless things are nice in my life? And I think, sadly, that's where a lot of Christians are. And in our culture today, I think, you know, because of persecution or other things, we kind of shy away from certain truths, shy away from obeying God in certain areas because. Well, we suffer because of it. We're persecuted because of it, and we're not willing to obey when that happens. Well, I love what happens next because all night long the religious leaders think, hey, we got them in prison, and they're thinking, what are we going to do these guys? We threatened them. And, you know, they did exactly what we told them not to do. We're going to go take care of business. So let's see what happens, verse 21. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officer came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So the mornings come. The high priests think they've been in prison all night. They're ready to go and put them on trial. And so they call the the elders together. They get the, the, you know, trial group all together, and they're ready to put them on trial, and they send someone, all right, go get the prisoners. So the officer goes to the prison to get the apostles to bring them before the council, and notice what happens. He goes and says, indeed, we found the prison shut securely, the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And we got there, it was still all secure, the guards were still there, but yet Somehow, the prisoners weren't there. I mean, it's a miraculous thing. There's no way they could get out unless something miraculous were to transpire. Well, the religious leaders, they, they hear this report and were told that they wondered what the outcome would be. Now, the Greek word translated wondered is not a good translation because this Greek word means to be entirely at loss and completely perplexed. They were just like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. I mean, they were at a loss for words. They were completely perplexed. We just put these guys in prison that are preaching this message that we don't want them to preach. This is the second time we put them in there and they're gone. How is it that they're gone? You know, and so they're starting to freak out a little bit about what's going on here. I'm sure this is the kind of feeling they had when Jesus' tomb was empty. And so, you know, they're getting to this place of, of what's next. Who are we dealing with? So as the religious leaders are freaking out, wondering what is the outcome of this going to be, another report comes to them. So they had the report, hey, the prison's empty, but the next report is even more fascinating. I'm probably sure more concerning for them. Verse 25, so one came and spoke to them saying, look, the men whom you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I'm thinking the religious leaders are pretty blown away by this. There's the miracle of them being removed from prison, but yet they probably would have thought, well, you got out of prison, you're running and hiding, you're trying to get away from us. They go right back to the temple, right back to the place they were arrested, and they're preaching to the people again. This is already the second time they've arrested them. Peter and John, they arrest, they threaten. These guys, they arrest, they throw them in prison, they're ready to really do something with them, they escape from prison, and now they're back at it, back in the temple, back preaching the message of the gospel, well, these religious leaders would have realized we got a problem. They're not afraid of us. They're not doing what we tell them to do. Our threats aren't working. We put them in a prison. They escape prison, and they're going straight back to the place that we just arrested them from. Well, now we're going to see how these guys deal with this problem. Verse twenty-six. Then the captain went to the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, the apostles now are arrested for the third time. But notice the arrest is a little bit different this time. Last time they just grabbed them and they tossed them in the prison. But this time we're told they, they take them without violence because of fear of the people. Because now they've been doing lots of miracles. The people love them. people's giving glory to God. And so you know the religious leaders are fearful that the people might stone them if they do something too harsh to the apostles. And I can just picture these officers coming and saying, no... Hey, excuse me, guys, uh, would you mind just coming with us? You know, we, we, we'd like to talk with you in private here. I mean, you know, before it was just grabbing them, tossing them into prison, and now there's all this fear. But, but notice the fear is the fear of people. They didn't have this fear of God of, whoa, God obviously is doing miracles among them. God obviously miraculously saved them from prison. There's no fear of God. There's just a fear of people, which has been one of the big problems of the religious leaders ever since we've seen them in the Gospel of Luke. So the apostles go with them. They're set before the religious council. And notice what the high priest says. He has this opportunity now to speak to them. And he says, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. The accusation of the high priest is just a wonderful, wonderful testimony to the effectiveness of the message preached by the apostles. Notice what he says. He declares himself, you have filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. You filled Jerusalem with the truth of what Jesus has done. He himself is upset because he realizes you have made such an impact in this city that everyone knows the gospel of Jesus. Everybody knows what you guys have been proclaiming. He's obviously saying it in a negative, but what a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful thing if the world can say to us as a church, man, you have just totally filled Pasadena and the surrounding areas with the gospel message. Stop it. We don't like it. We don't want you to continue with this. But notice what else he says. You want to bring the blood of Jesus on us. You're trying to bring the blood of Jesus on us. And I find that to be a very interesting statement by the high priest. And the reason I think this is a very interesting statement is because if you remember at the trial of Jesus, and, and Pilate says, you know what, I will release to you Barabbas, and, and, or I'll release you know, Jesus or Barabbas, and they you know, ultimately say, we want Barabbas. But notice there's something that they say to Pilate that when you read through that, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe you would actually say that. But verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that atonement was rising, he took water and washed his hand before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered them to be crucified. Notice what the high priest and the religious leaders say. Let Jesus' blood be on us and our children. I mean, what a statement to make. But notice now, how dare you? You're trying to bring the blood of Jesus onto us. And you're the ones who said, let his blood be on us. It seems like now the conviction of the Holy Spirit is on their life and on their sin. And they don't want people saying, hey, you're responsible for Jesus' death, even though that is the truth. Well, notice how the apostles answer the high priest's question, verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. Notice the first response to this threat again to this, you know, you're filling Jerusalem with this, you're trying to bring the blood of Jesus on us. Once again, just like the last time they were arrested, they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. They recognize the importance of obedience to God over obedience to the religious leaders, of obedience really to anyone else. And I think this is something that's so important for us as believers to recognize. Believing and obedience to God should be the top priority over uh, obedience to anyone else. You know, we live in a culture that is desperate for us to obey it. We live in a culture that is constantly trying to get us to conform to it. They want us to believe the way they believe. They want us to think the way they think. They want us to act the way they act. And they're trying to conform us into that. And we have to get to that place where we say, are we willing to obey God more than anyone else? Because there's a lot of voices in our cultures, some celebrities, some politicians, some different leaders, and they're all shouting different things that are ultimately worldly philosophies and worldly things, and they want us as Christians to buy into that, to believe that, to follow that, and we have to come to a place like the apostles did and say, you know what? I'm going to obey God. He's the one I'm going to obey, not you. I'm going to listen to the voice of God, not your voice. I'm going to follow the voice of God, not your voice, and that can be a difficult thing for us to do. To tune out and say, you know what, all these other things, I don't care what you're saying. There's only one voice that matters. There's only one person that ultimately matters, and I'm going to obey him. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of the persecution, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the trials, because those will come when we make a stand, just like we see here with the apostles. They're making a stand for Jesus, and things don't get nice and rosy for them. Things get more difficult and hard for them. But that's not something that they equate into that. They say, you know what, I don't care. Whatever comes, comes. But I'm going to stand and obey God over you. And this is such a good challenge for us, especially in our culture today. I get so saddened by, especially leaders in the church, but Christians as a whole, who are abandoning Obeying God because of the voice of the world, the voice of the culture that is overpowering and saying, you know what? Yeah, we'll kind of throw this out and we'll buy into what you're saying and and we'll follow what you're saying. And no, regardless of what you say, regardless of what you think, we are not going to buy into that or follow that. We are going to obey God and him alone. Notice what else the apostles say. They tell him, hey, once again, this is Jesus who you killed who you murdered, who you hung on the cross, and God has exalted him as Savior. He's going to bring repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses. And you know what? Who else is a witness? The Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's been given to all those who believe and obey Jesus. Well, verse 33 gives us the response to, of the religious leaders to what they say. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. We're not obeying you guys And by the way, you killed Jesus. God raised him up. He's now Savior and Lord. And you know what? He's saving Israel from their sins. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us. We're witnesses of that. They hear that message and they're furious, so furious, that now they plot how they can kill the apostles. They're in the same place as they were with Jesus. So while this is happening, a man named Gamaliel, he's got something to tell the religious leaders. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 34, Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourself what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to Nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Gamaliel was a top rabbinical teacher and leader within the uh, group of Judaism there at that time. We know that the Apostle Paul, when he was still Saul, he studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the rabbinical teachers who helped him learn about Judaism. So here's a guy who's very respected, and he says, you know what, let's have the apostles leave. I want to talk to you all of you who are on the council here for a moment. And so he addresses the council, men of Israel, take heed to yourself what you intend to do regarding the apostles that you've arrested. And he goes on to share about two men. He gives two examples about two guys who rose up claiming to be something. And there were people who followed them. One had 400, another had a group of people. Both men die. And he notes, All the people who followed them, they dispersed. Nothing came of it because it was just men and it was just their thing that they were doing and it all just kind of scattered on its own. And now he gives the point of his two examples in verse 38. Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But it's of God. You cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Gamal saying, hey, if what these apostles are doing is of men, it's going to come to nothing. Don't worry about it. Let it go. It's just like these other guys. It will just end with nothing. They'll end up dying and all these people following them. If it's of men, it won't last. But if it's of God, you don't want to get in the way of that. If it's of God, you better steer clear of that. If it's of God, you don't want to do anything to these guys to hinder the work of God. Now, this is great advice. Unfortunately, Gamaliel's not really putting it into practice because he doesn't do anything beyond just kind of throwing this out there. But you know what? There's truth to this. If it's of men, it's just going to die out. If it's of God, you can't stop it. And so he throws this out there. Just let him go. Let's see what happens. Well, let's see if uh, the religious leaders take his advice. Verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It says they, they agreed with him, but obviously they didn't fully agree with him because Gamaliel says, just let him go and let's just see what happens. And they, oh, that's great advice, Gamaliel. Bring him in here. Beat them. You know, so you know, it wasn't a full agreement. We're going to do something to these guys to try to stop them and hinder them and strike some fear in them. So hopefully they won't continue to preach in Jesus' name. Now, obviously, their desire was to kill them. So they probably thought, well, we're only beating them and then we're letting them go. So we're being quite lenient here. But they do beat the apostles and most likely beat them in a similar fashion that Jesus was beaten. And it would have been a horrible thing. But I want you to notice the response to this beating In verses 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I'm sure the religious leaders thought we're going to intimidate them. We're going to beat them. They're not going to want to go out and share Jesus anymore. We're really going to hinder this work. Well, let's just see how they respond. Notice the first response. They left rejoicing. Now, I want you to note something. They weren't rejoicing in the fact that they were just beaten and they're hurting and their body is hurting. That's not why they're rejoicing. Oftentimes, we read scripture and you we know, rejoice in trials. And they're like, I can't rejoice and that's just so horrible. The Bible's not saying rejoice in the suffering, rejoice in the difficulty. That's not what we're rejoicing in. Notice what they're rejoicing in. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. They say, you know what, it's a privilege to be associated with Jesus. We're not suffering just because we're sinful people. We're suffering because we're proclaiming Jesus and the world doesn't like it. We're being persecuted for that. And so they felt it's an honor to suffer for sharing Jesus. It wasn't, oh, we're so blessed and we're rejoicing that we've been beaten. No, we're rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Jesus tells us something very similar about suffering in Matthew's Gospel, verses Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The apostles rejoiced, not only that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name, but there was a recognition as they sat under Jesus that, you know what, there are rewards that are eternal when you suffer for Jesus in the present life. And that's something that we need to remember. What we go through for Christ, what we deal with for Christ, the persecution and suffering that we endure for Christ in this life brings eternal rewards in eternity with him in heaven. God promises that. If you go through these things for me here, I'm going to reward you for all eternity. And that's something that should encourage us. That's something that we should recognize. That there are blessings that maybe they won't even be seen in this life, but they will be seen in the life to come as we obey God as we stand for him in the midst of persecution and suffering so the religious leaders thought they would intimidate and discourage the apostles by beating them but they respond with rejoicing but there's another response the response that i'm sure that made them even more upset daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ and notice this pattern daily in the temple in the homes Wherever they went, they continued to preach Jesus. You guys better never preach about Jesus, never teach about Jesus anymore. Oh, well, maybe we'll go to once a month or or once a week. No, no, no. Their pattern was every single day, wherever they were, whether it was at home, whether it was in the temple, there was a pattern of a lifestyle of evangelism. And I think we need to recognize that because I think within the church, we have this concept too much of, all right, you know, like we're going to do on the 21st, we're going to go out together and reach out to people at the park. And we say, well, that's evangelism. Yes, it is. But that's not the only time we should do it. Oh, well, we're going to go and evangelize. Well, yeah, but we should have a daily lifestyle of evangelism where wherever we're at, as the Lord brings unsaved people across our paths, we want to share. We want to be obedient to the command that God says, reach the world with the gospel. Now, that doesn't just mean, well, I'll do that when we have the official time that we all go together and get our tracks out and we share with people. And, and that's the time I'm going to do it. We'd love you to come and join us with that. But there's plenty of other opportunities that God brings to each of us in our own daily lives that we can take advantage of it. And we see these guys doing this. But ultimately, I want you to note the huge obedience to that. God commanded them at the get-go, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. They got that, and now they're seeking to go out and preach the gospel. And they've been told, don't do it. If you do it, you're in big trouble. They were just beaten. They know the consequences that come from doing it. And instead of shying away from it, instead of saying, you know what? The suffering is too much. We're not going to be able to continue to obey. They say, no, we're going to obey even though we just were beaten, even though we know that what's coming is not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be nice. It's going to be difficult. But what's more important to us is obeying the Lord. One of the biggest things to help you to be used in great ways by God is obeying him. And one of the biggest ways to cause you to not be used in great ways by God is disobedience to him. You know, as I studied this passage through this week, God was really challenging me on how much I need to grow in obedience. And it's not just on whether or not we will obey God. You know, God was really hitting me with, you know, it's not just Are you going to do it or aren't you going to do it? But it's also the attitude in which you do it and how quickly you do it. And as the Lord was challenging me with that, I was thinking just as a father myself. He's the heavenly father and I'm a father to my girls. And one of the things that I struggle with with my girls is, you know what, Jenny and I, we want obedience. Like all of you who are parents, you want obedience from your kids. But one thing that we regularly say to them is obey without delay. Because they'll obey sometimes, but it takes them a while. They whine about it for a while. They, they try everything they do not to do it, and then they'll finally do it. But it's, no, no, we want immediate obedience. We'll tell you to do it. Respond quickly. Obey without delay. And sometimes you get obedience without delay, but other times you also struggle with, you know what, you might be obedient, but your attitude's horrible. You're doing what I'm asking of you, but you can surely see that... You don't want to. Inside, you're totally against it. You're just outwardly doing it because I've told you to, but the heart isn't there at all. And the Lord's been showing me, I don't just want you, know, you to obey me. I want you to obey me right away, and I want you to obey me with a good heart attitude when I tell you to do the things that I tell you to do. Because growing up, I was just like my girls. I didn't want to obey. I didn't want to obey without delay. And I always asked the question, why? Well, Mom, why do I have to do this? And you know, usually they wouldn't explain to me why. And they would say the words that as kids we don't want to hear because I say so. Because I told you, I'm the parent, just do it. Quit asking me questions. But now that I'm a parent, I realize, you know what? I could try to explain to my, you know, now five-year-old and six-year-old, you know, hey, this is why. But, you know, it would go beyond their comprehension many times. And so I use the same thing. Just obey me because I tell you and just trust me. Trust that I know what's best. Trust that I'm doing this for your good. Just trust dad and do what I say. But, you know, we grow up, we get saved, and now we have this new father, our heavenly father. And ultimately, I found in my own life, he does the same thing to us. When I say, well, why, God? You know what? (laughs) Your little infinite mind, you know, it can't can't comprehend, you know, or your finite mind can't comprehend what what, what I'm going to do here. So just trust me. Just trust that I know what's best. Just do it because I tell you to. Don't have to figure it all out. Just obey me. And that's the struggle sometimes. You know, I, I'm somebody who I love to know the whys, and the Lord oftentimes just says, just, just listen and obey and do it and trust that I'm commanding you this because it's what's best for you in every relationship and everything that I've told you to do, it's best for you. The real challenge for us is are we willing to just trust and obey what God tells us right away, without delay, with a good attitude? You know, I remember when I first went to Scotland, or actually when I was preparing to go, I had this team of people that were ready to go with me. And, you know, I'm at the Bible College, and it was missions focused, and it was always about bring together the team, that's the way to go. I was the only one to get a visa. I was the only one to get support, and no one else had that. No one else could go except for me. And I'm starting to think of all the logistics, and I sat down with one of the pastor mentors of mine. His name was Rod Thompson, and I just started going into all the, you know, I should go for this reason, I shouldn't go for this reason, and going back and forth. And, and he just stopped me and he said, you know what, you're just making this too complicated. There's really only one question you need to answer. You know that God has clearly called you. He's opened up all the doors. It's quite obvious to all of us. He's called you there. There's the question I want you to answer. Are you going to obey what God's called you to do or not? The rest of it's irrelevant. You're, you're, you're throwing all this other stuff, but the real bottom core line is, hey, are you going to obey him or aren't you going to obey him? That's the only question you really need to answer And it really made it simple. And I came back to, you're right. I just need to be obedient and do what he's called me to do and go. And because I went, I was able to see God do this great work through me, great work in me, great work in the Scottish people. But you know what? If I said, nah, forget it. I'm not going. There's all these different things going on. I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't have been able to experience and be blessed in that way. You know, I shared with you even had a similar experience coming here. Jenny and I weren't expecting to come to Texas we weren't expecting definitely for the Lord to lead us here once again we wanted a team God hadn't provided that and he clearly said you guys just go move to Pasadena and we're thinking all right well once again it was just are you going to obey or not forget trying to figure it all out forget you know who's going to be on the team who's not are you willing just to say I will obey you and go and once again when we made that choice to obey we were able to experience the great things that God has done in this church and through us and in us Uh, And it really comes down to that simple question. Are we willing to obey God or not? In our marriages, are we willing to obey God or not? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Well, God, you know there's this reason I can't and that reason. You know, at the end of the day, are we willing to say, all right, I'll obey you. Wives, respect and submit to your husband. Oh, well, you don't even know what kind of guy I'm married to. Well, it comes down to are you willing to obey God or not? And all these different relationships with our enemies love them. Oh, Lord, you don't understand how horrible this person is. It comes back to am I willing to obey God or not? It's not about the person and the relationship I have with them. Ultimately, it's about the relationship I have with God. Am I willing to obey God? Regardless of how that person treats me, regardless of how that person is, am I willing to do what God tells me to do in all these different circumstances, the way I live, the way I speak? It really comes back to, am I willing to say, Lord, I'm just going to obey you even though I might not understand everything, even though I might have questions. I'm just going to trust that you know what's best, and I'm going to obey you and do it with a good attitude. And you know what? I'm not there. I haven't come to a place where I always obey right away without delay, without asking questions. But, you know, I have found when I have been obedient to the Lord, the impact it makes on my life and how he can work in me and through me drastically changes. And I think we see that in the apostles. We see that throughout Scripture. And I want to encourage you, be obedient. It will do great things in every relationship we have. It will do great things in your life. And I just want to take a moment... As we close this morning, just to be quiet before the Lord. And if there's areas of your life where you look, you listen, you're thinking, you know what? I know there's some willful disobedience in my life right now. I know there are things that the Bible clearly tells me I shouldn't be doing that I'm doing. Or I know there are things that the Bible tells me I should be doing that I've chosen not to do. And I want you to take this moment right now as we're quiet before the Lord, just between you and him, just to confess those things. But not just to ask for his forgiveness, but also to ask him to help you to change, to help you to be obedient, to help you to do the things that he's called you to do and to stop doing the things that he's called you not to do. So let's just take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord and do that, uh, and then I'll close us in prayer.
0: to obey more, Just obey your word and stop disobeying and uh, second-guessing your word, doubting, uh, not doing, setting it for tomorrow, and just, just need to do it today, now.